Good morning, church. What a blessing it is to be here with you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's been six months, almost to the day, since we last saw each other. And um, I was just commenting to someone that I, I was telling my daughters, I think it's been about a year. And she goes, no, it's been about six months. And she was right. She, she, was, she was six months. But someone here commented, but it was six months in COVID time. So it probably felt like a long time, more than that. And probably that's the case. Um, I'm here to uh, preach, and I'm here with a message that God has laid heavily upon my heart, and I pray that God would use his word today to glorify himself. So if you will do me the honor of opening your Bibles to Luke chapter 14, Luke chapter 14, verses 25 and on, we will stop at verse 33, verse 30, excuse me. I'm sorry, we're going to go to 33. I don't know what my notes say there, but it's 33. Would you please stand with me in reverence to God's word, if you're able to? Um, Luke 14, verse 25 and on. This is the very word of God. May God give us ears to hear what the Spirit has to say. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters. Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet as a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. May God bless the reading of his word. Let us pray. Father. The message today is a powerful one because it's based on your word. And we have Jesus Christ himself before us speaking. May our hearts be attentive to what he says. May your word today remove from us any preconceived notions, any false ideas, anything, Lord, that will not glorify you. May your word today remove the false and expose the true. Father, it is our goal, it is our prayer that you would save any who is unsaved and that you would confirm those who are saved that they would know that they are yours. This is our goal today through the preaching of your word. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would bless it. Speak now through this marred vessel to further marred vessels. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I wanted to start with a, a series of questions, if you would allow me. And the first is this. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? That's, that's a question that only you and God, the Holy Spirit, can answer. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Now notice I didn't ask you, do you go to church? 
Notice I didn't ask you if you serve in the worship ministry or you're a deacon. Notice I didn't ask you if you believe the doctrines. What I'm asking you, quite simply, is this. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Because that is the most important question that you can settle in your heart today. Because for the disciple of Jesus Christ is guaranteed the eternal state. And for anyone who is not a disciple of Jesus Christ, only weeping and gnashing of teeth is, 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 is told for us in Scripture. So the question for you today, well, the one that you need to consider is, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? I didn't ask you if you were born in the church. I didn't ask you if you were homeschooled. I didn't ask you if you know the word of God. I didn't ask you if, if, if you believe or have a mental assent to, to certain doctrines. I didn't ask you if you have an emotional uh, uh, a reaction to the singing and the preaching of the word of God. I asked you quite simply one question. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? That, that, that is going to be our, our whole message today. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? The second question that I have for you is, how do you define being a disciple of Jesus Christ? How do you define being a disciple of Jesus Christ? I submit to you that even within the church, we have wrongly defined what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We have reverted back to, and I believe this with my heart, to a works-based salvation. When I ask people many times, how do you define being a disciple of Jesus Christ? Most people say, by their fruits you shall know them. And yes, that is scripture and that is true. But what do we mean by fruits? Do we mean works? Because if that's what we mean, then we have a problem. Because everywhere in scripture, the Bible tells us that by the deeds of the law, no man, no flesh shall be justified. So what works is God talking about when he says, by their, by their fruit you shall know them? What is God speaking of? How do you define discipleship? Because it's easy if we redefine discipleship than to say, yes, I'm a disciple according to my definition. But today we want to come to the Word of God. And we want to look at the definition provided to us by no other than Jesus Christ himself. And he should be able to tell us what a disciple must look like if he's going to follow him. And so that is our goal today. So what we have before us today is one of the most important passages of Scripture, I believe, yeah. In this passage, Jesus himself defines and sets the biblical criteria for genuine discipleship. And by doing so, Jesus categorizes any other definition, listen, any other definition as false. If we're going to be a disciple of Jesus and Jesus tells us what it is to be a disciple, that's the only definition that matters. Everything else must be false. So we know that only the genuine disciple enters into eternal state. So this question is, is, is one that's rather important. We need to understand what it means to be a disciple. Today, like in the time of Christ, people are prone to redefine discipleship and make it something far easier and non-committal than what Jesus Christ intended. And I warn you about this. I warn you about this thought of, well, yes, of course I'm a disciple. I come to church. I believe what the Bible says about certain things, or maybe almost all of it, but it, if it hasn't impacted my life, then we have a problem. Uh, and, I, and I believe that we have a problem with people thinking, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ because of these things. And they have this list of works which God never intended. And I want to warn you about these things. If you will keep your Bibles open, if you will turn in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, because the danger of this nominal belief is openly portrayed by, to us by Jesus Christ himself in Matthew 7, 21. 
I pray that the words that you know well, I'm sure, will have a deep impact upon your life like never before. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone, I would, I would underline that in the Bible because I think that's important. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, we're not talking about the cults. We're not talking about people who are obviously not in the faith. We're talking about people who come to church and call Jesus what? Lord. Do you see it? And Jesus says, among that group that comes to church and openly identifies themselves as disciples, not everyone. That's a scary thought. And I hope that you see how scary that thought is. Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What is that will? What is Jesus Christ referring to right here? On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Notice they are persistent and identifying themselves as disciples of Jesus Christ. And be careful with the next sentence. It says, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? If we're going to identify ourselves, and we're going to define discipleship by the things we do, we have a group here that has done things that are greater than the things I've ever done, and probably greater than you've ever done. They say to the Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. Lord, we cast out demons in your name. Lord, we did mighty great works in your name. Do you see what he's saying here? These people have a list of works that if these people were present in our churches, we'd say, well, obviously that person is a Christian. He prophesies. He cast out demons. He does mighty great works. He has to be a believer because we've redefined what it means to be a disciple. Isn't that scary? Because the list of works that these people have is far more impressive than the list of works that any of you have or that I have before God. And notice Christ's reaction to them. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. That word know means intimacy. I don't have a relationship with you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And they will be cast out. In this passage, then we encounter the judgment day of our Lord in which many so-called believers will be astounded to find themselves outside of salvation. And I submit to you how incredibly tragic it must be to be thoroughly convinced about something that is not true, especially something this important. To be thoroughly convinced that I belong to the Lord Jesus and yet the, the Lord Jesus say, I never knew you. Beloved, I do not want this for any of you or for myself. So please, beloved, pay careful attention today to what it means to be a disciple. Let Jesus Christ himself speak and listen to him and pay attention to what he says because I think it is of eternal significance. May our hearts be mindful of what our Lord teaches on this subject. And let us look then at verse 25 of chapter 14 of the book of Luke where we learn that association with Christ does not a disciple make. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, in this first verse of consideration, we are immediately awestruck by the number of people, quote-unquote, following Jesus. The Bible clearly states that it was a great crowd. And we, we notice that this crowd got close to Christ. They were accompanying him on his journey, on his mission. They were present wherever he was. And we are quick to say, they must be disciples. Don't we want our churches filled, beloved, with people 
hopefully that are genuinely love the Lord. And, and it is easy to look at a crowd that's literally forsaking their daily lives and following Jesus wherever he goes and after him and say, well, they must be disciples for they follow him. They, everywhere he goes, he, they go. They love to listen to him. His teaching has had some sort of impact upon their lives. They must be disciples. But here we run aground on the modern definition of discipleship. Today, as long as the crowd seems to be following Jesus, we are prone to declare them disciples of Christ. After all, we conclude they are accompanying him. But beloved, please notice that a mere following of Jesus is unacceptable to our Lord. Jesus was not impressed with the numbers of the crowd. And Jesus was not impressed with their nominal following. He turns around and he confronts them. They thought, we were following you, we're your disciples. And he turns around to this great crowd and says, wait a minute, hold on one second. Unless, and then he gives them the criteria of discipleship. He doesn't say, look how many people are here, but he is really concerned for them. He turns around and he confronts them. Today, Jesus is not impressed with, listen to what I'm about to say, church attendance, your tithing record, your following, your once in a while posting on social media something about the Lord. Jesus is concerned with your heart. Amen? And I hope that you hear that. Jesus is concerned with your heart. Our churches are filled with such people, people that come to church and they sing the songs and, and they give and, and, have, and some have even mental assent to the truth of scriptures. They, they, they might cry, they might get emotional, they might teach, but today we are quick to label people whom Jesus had never labeled as his. We are confronted by the fact that Jesus, unpleased with the nominal following, turns to this very crowd and he delivers some of the most challenging teachings found in all of scripture. He wants to define for the crowd, he himself, what it means to be a disciple. Jesus does not want any misunderstanding. He does not want the crowd to think that he accepts them just as they are. The exhortation that follows is for all to hear. It is a matter of everlasting life versus everlasting death. All must hear what follows. Eternity literally rests in the balance. And Christ do that. So then Jesus talks and he gives us two criteria for which we can measure our life and find out if we are truly his disciples. These are the fruits by which we will be known. Number one, verse 26. Criteria number one of discipleship is found in that verse. It says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot, he cannot be my disciples. To this crowd, our Lord says, you're following me, but you do not love me appropriately. Do you hear? He says, unless you hate your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your husband, your wife, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your own life, he says, you cannot be my disciple. Here Jesus tells the people that devotion to himself must be so, must be so wholehearted that even attachment to parents and other members of one's own family must not be allowed to stand in the way of following Christ. In other words, Christ is demanding all. Christ is demanding all. To the 
To be a disciple, there must be a surrendering of all relationship, even your own life to our Lord. This, beloved, is a radical statement. Disciples are to give wholehearted love to Jesus. Listen to what I'm about to say. A lukewarm or a divided heart is indicative of an unsaved heart. A lukewarm or a divided heart is indicative of an unsaved heart. How do you love Jesus Christ today? Does he mean everything to you? Do you love him? Do you see the beauty of Christ? Is he your first thought and your last? Do you weep at the teaching and at the reading of his word? Does your heart long for him? Are you longing for the eternal state when we will see him as he is and we will be like him? Whatever that means in all of its implications. Do you love Jesus Christ more than anything, including yourself? That means you need to look at your father and your mother to the side of you your brother, your sister, your husband, your spouse, and say, I might love you, but not like I love Jesus. Jesus, to me, is first and foremost. Do you love Jesus Christ? Because if you don't love him in this way, his words ring, his words ring through, through this temple, to this sanctuary, and they say, then you cannot be my disciple Do you you hear the words? If you're not willing to love him this way, he says, you cannot be my disciple. What has bothered many people about this very verse that we have read is the word hate there, which Jesus uses. Does Jesus, our master, really mean that I must hate, detest, abhor, loathe my father, mother, wife, children, my brothers, my sisters? We, we, We do not like that word hate. We do not like the word hate. But we must read scripture with scripture. And the parallel passage clears up the meaning of this verse very well for us. In Matthew 10, 37, our Lord says, Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In other words, if you have an idol in your life, anything you love more than God, whether it be father, mother, wife, brother, sister, child, is an idol if you love it more than Christ. If you love him more than Christ. If you love her more than Christ. And God, we know, will share his glory with no one. And the commandments remind us that he is a jealous God. And so if you love anyone or anything more than Jesus Christ, you are an idolater. You are not his disciple. Not until you forsake, you get rid of that love And love him more than anything else. This is what the word of God is teaching us. The word hate is to love less. You've heard of that corny acronym before. Joy. Jesus first. Others second. Yourself last. Anybody hear that before? That is so wrong. It is Jesus first, foremost, best, and forever. A huge chasm. And then everything else. There's no... Jesus first, and then someone really close second. There can be a no close second to Jesus Christ. He must be all. He must be all. Then the meaning of the word hate, as we can see, is to love less in fervency. Christ must be loved more. Christ must be preeminent. This is the thought behind Colossians 1.18. 
The word of God says this, and he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, praise God, and the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might preeminent. Unless Christ is preeminent in your heart, you are not a disciple. Don't redefine the word. Listen to the words of Jesus. Beloved, Christ must be preeminent in your life. The Father has exalted Jesus to the highest place. And it, is, and it is the church's job to do the very same thing. And we as individuals must exalt Jesus above every other love. What the Savior demands in Luke 4, 26, 14, 26, excuse me. Another like passage is complete devotion. The type of loyalty that is so true and unswerving that every other attachment, even, one, even one's own life, must be subjected to it. This is the call of discipleship. There is no other acceptable definition. Beloved, to what extent do you love Jesus Christ? Answer that question by God's grace. Look within. Do you love job more than Jesus Christ? Do you love him more than Jesus Christ? Do you love her more than Jesus Christ? Do you love them more than Jesus Christ? Do you love it more than Jesus Christ? Then you're in danger. You're in eternal danger. To what extent are you devoted to his cause, to his glory? We cannot merely follow Jesus, but we must be fully identified with him, or you, according to the word of God, cannot be his disciple. So, beloved, ask yourself that one question today. Do not leave this place without examining your heart. Say like David, oh Lord, search my heart and see if there's any wicked way within me. Look with inside and say, God, Holy Spirit, study my heart. Show me, do I love anyone, anything, any, any person, whatever it might be. Do I love anything more than Jesus Christ? Because if I do, I'm in eternal danger. Jesus must be first. His beauty must be before me. My heart must long for him as I run wholeheartedly towards him, knowing that there awaits for me a city whose builder and whose maker is God, waiting to, for that day when I will see him as he is, waiting for that day when we will sit with him in the marriage supper of the Lamb. That should be your own focus, your only focus. I love Jesus Christ. Do you love Jesus Christ? That's criteria number one. And if your answer is no, or if your heart is convicting you today, beg God that he would give you that love. Ask God for the forgiveness of your sins. Ask God that he would take away the love for other things and that he would fully place your heart upon Jesus Christ. Turn your back on your idolatry. That you would love Jesus so much more than everything else would look like hate compared to how much you love Jesus Christ. That's criteria number one. Jesus is not done. In verse 27, he gives us criteria number two of discipleship. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Notice that whoever does not bear his own cross. This is the picture of a condemned man who is forced to take up and carry his own cross, his method of execution, to the place where he's about to die. However, what the convict does under compulsion, the disciple of Christ does willingly, even joyfully, for he loves his Lord. He voluntarily and decisively accepts the pain, the shame, the persecution that will be his lot in life because of his loyalty to Christ Jesus the Lord and to his loyalty to Christ. There is a willingness then to die. It's not that I can love no one else or nothing else more than Jesus Christ. I can't even love my own life more than Jesus Christ. What is my life? 
but only something that is devoted to Jesus Christ. Or as John the Baptist put it, I must decrease, he must increase whatever the Lord wants he gets, including my very lifeblood. He is God. He is worthy. Notice, there must be a willingness to pick up that method of execution and come after Jesus. The phrase coming after Jesus means to attach oneself to Jesus as his disciple. It means to follow him, follow his teaching, and follow his manner of living. So let me ask you a few questions. Do you follow Jesus Christ? John 18, 12 says, Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Praise God. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Are you walking in his light? Question number two. Do you follow his teaching? That There's an element of the word obedience in there. Are you obedient to the word of God? To every part of it. Even the part that you do not like. Even the part that strikes you as being wrong. Even the part that goes contrary to human nature. Do you follow Christ? Is he always right and you're always wrong? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ's teaching? 1 John 2, verse 3 to 4 says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, to have relationship with Jesus Christ. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, I have relationship with him, but does not, but does not keep his commandment, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. That word liar hurts. Even in today's lying culture, which is far worse than it's ever been. To call someone a liar to their face is insulting. It's fighting words. Even politicians who are known liars won't call each other a liar. You'll hear one politician look in the other and says, you're being disingenuous. It's a nice word of calling him what? A liar. But he will not use that word. That word cannot be used. We, 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 we will not use that. That word is offensive. And here God knowing that that word's offensive. God in that culture, knowing how offensive that word is, God says, if you say you love Jesus, but you will not live in obedience to his word, you are a liar. And the truth of God is not in you. That is the most, one of the most heavy statements that you can find in scripture. God, through the apostle, calling people who will not live in obedience, willfully disobeying the word of God and then calling themselves a disciple of Jesus Christ. God the Holy Spirit, through John the Revelator, says to you, you, if you're living in that way, are a liar and you have no part with the truth. You need to repent. Do you follow the teachings of Jesus Christ? That's how important it is to walk in obedience. And the third point, are you following in the manner of Christ's living are you emulating his life? 1 John 2, 6. Whoever says he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. Well, that makes sense. If he is the master and I am the disciple, I should walk closely behind him. I should walk in the same way that he walked. This is what it means to be a disciple. Notice Jesus says, unless you love me more than anything else, including your own life. And here the call is literally to die if need be for the sake of God's cause, which also means for the sake of God's people. For that's what he did. He dies for his people. If you're not willing to sacrifice all, your, your financial well-being, your, your physical well-being, your very life for the cause of Christ, Jesus says, then you cannot be my disciple. 
you cannot be my disciple. In other words, this person does not belong to Jesus. This person is not saved. This person will be rejected on the day of judgment. There will be, these are the kinds of people that call him Lord, Lord. And yet he will pass them by, for they are unknown to Jesus Christ himself. Beloved, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Do you love Jesus more than anyone or anything? And are you willing to die if need be for the cause? If you're unsure on any one of those two things, get it right today. Because listen to the words that Jesus punctuates each one of the criteria with. You cannot be my disciple unless this is true of you. Not that you're almost a disciple. Not that you're nearly there. But he says you what? Cannot be my disciple. I think a lot of our churches have very many people who come who do not love Jesus with everything they have and who are not willing to sacrifice even their own life for the cause, who think because they come and they sing and they worship and they have an emotional attachment that somehow they're going to be okay on that day of judgment. And the Lord says to them, get the hints, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. That is the most tragic thing that could happen in verse 28. And Jesus is saying, if you're not a disciple, then to become a disciple, first you must count the cost. And I love that about our Lord. He's very open about Christianity having a cost. He says in verse 28, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Christ presents the first two of these many parables for our consideration. And in it he speaks of a man desiring to build a new tower to protect his property. Jesus rightfully concludes that before the building starts, the man must first see if he has the resources to finish the job. He must count the cost of the tower, which what, which what, what, what kind of money he has in the bank. This parable then coupled with what we just learned above teaches us the following. The cost of following Christ is very real. It is not cheap. John 15 verses 18 through 19 says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You will be hated if you are a disciple. It will be difficult. What is the world's relationship with you? Does the world love you? You might have a problem. Does the world see you as one of those? You might be in good company. Where are you in relation? Do you love this present world? There's nothing wrong with enjoying what God has given us, but do you love this present world? Because if you love this present world, you are not a disciple of Jesus Christ. You cannot be. You will deny him every step of the way. Or do you love that city? That city that Abraham was looking forward to. That place that the book of Revelation speaks so gloriously about. Do you love God and his promises? The cost of following Christ requires complete devotion to his cause. Paul the Apostle exemplifies this. Philippians 3 verses 7 and on. He says, he says I, count, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Everything in my life, whatever I've gained. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And then in verse 
10, he says, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection, that I might share his sufferings. I want to share with the sufferings of Christ. When was the last time you said something like that or I said something like that? I want to become like him in his death, that by any means possible, whatever I have to do, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I want to be found to be genuine on that day. The cost of following Christ means abnegation. That's a word that we don't hear too much now in our churches. Self-denial. It's a self-denial of wants, pleasure, comforts, and life itself. Paul, again, Philippians 1, 20 and 21, the middle of 20 says, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Can you honestly say that? For me to live is whom? Say it. Jesus Christ. All that matters is Jesus Christ, his cause, his person. And to die for me, well, that's gain. This is Paul the Apostle speaking in regards to where he found himself in life. Beloved, Jesus is honest with us from the very beginning. He does not hide the fact that Christianity is not easy. Therefore, any potential follower of Christ must count the cost. The question to ask is, do I love him more than I love life itself? But at this point, another question arises in our own hearts. Is following Jesus Christ worth it? That's a good question to ask. Because Jesus is saying, love me more than anything else. Jesus is saying, die if you need to be. Jesus is saying, if those two things are not possible in your heart, or if you will not do those two things, you are not a disciple. Jesus is saying, listen, count the cost before you start building. Make sure you're willing to pay the price before you start building. And so we need to ask ourselves, is Jesus Christ worth it? Is it worth the cost? Well, Matthew 16, 25, 26 helps us to answer that. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give and return for his soul? How do we answer that? Well, how much is your soul worth to you? That's a good question to ask on a Sunday. How much is your soul today worth to you? Is it worth it? 1 Corinthians 2.9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Is it worth it? Absolutely. Far beyond anything you could ever imagine. You have no concept. This is what the scriptures say. No human being has any concept of what awaits the believer when he enters into the eternal state. Praise God for that. For all that you think heaven is, you have no clue to what is waiting for you. I have no clue to that glory, what about that glorious state. Glory be to God. So in verse 29 and 30, we move on to the second parable. Jesus has just told you, you must love me more than anything else. Criteria number one, you must love me than your own life. Be willing to die. Jesus has just told you, count the cost. If you're not there, if you haven't come to Christ, count the cost before you do. You have to make sure you're willing to pay the cost. And in verse 29 to 30, he tells you, if you start something, you better finish it. Amen? If you start something, you better finish it. Verse 29 to 30, otherwise when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, 
all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. There's only one group that the world hates more than the Christian. That group is the people that formerly identified themselves as Christians and now live apart from Jesus. Even the world recognizes that hypocrisy. Even the world says, weren't you one of those guys that used to go to church? Even, even the world recognizes the hypocrisy of starting and not finishing something. The world delights in mocking those that having started could not see their confession through to the very end. They see the hypocrisy of such living. Where once a person confessed Christ, now they live in the same wretched agony of sinfulness found in the world. And they're even worse than the sinner because at least the sinner never started. The sinner never loved God. You said you did. Jesus speaks of such people in Luke 9, 61 through 62. Yet another person said to Jesus, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hands to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Did you catch what he just said? No one who starts and then quits is fit for the kingdom of God. So Jesus says, count the cost. But before you commit to following me, make sure that you are going to be trusting in me to finish this work in you. Because if you don't, if you're doing it by your own power, you're going to fail. And if you fail, you're worse, your latter end is worse than your first. Have you ever read Pilgrim's Progress? A beautiful allegory of the Christian life. Listen to a portion of Pilgrim's Progress in which Christian flees the city of destruction. So I saw in my dream that the man began to run. Now he had not run far from his door, but his wife, his children, perceiving that he was leaving, began to cry after him to please return. But the man put his fingers in his ears, ran on crying, life, life, eternal life. So he looked not behind him, but fled towards the middle of the plain. This is what we're talking about, amen? This encapsulates the entire message. His own wife came after him. Don't you love me? His own children, daddy, please come home. Don't follow Jesus. And he put his fingers in his ears and he ran as hard as he could away from those who would detract him from Jesus Christ, even if it meant running away from his wife and his children. Screaming all the while, life, life, eternal life. That's what I'm seeking. Do you love Jesus Christ? Have you plugged up your ears? Are you running, screaming, life, life, eternal life? The Bible tells us this is what's required. And our author, John Bunyan, says he would not turn back. He would not even look at them, lest his heart would love them more than Christ. He would not look at them, but only ran forward, looking only towards Jesus Christ. Beloved, are you running towards Christ? A note of caution, I must interject here. We must address the following. No one can start or finish the Christian life by his own strength. You will fail. When Christ commands you to count the cost, he has asked you to be sure that you are willing to accept all of what discipleship means. This readiness comes from a sincere giving of oneself to Christ. It comes from a prayerful heart that asks God to start and finish the race. It comes from a heart that understands the greatness of salvation. Yes, beloved, Philippians 2.21 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
But the very next verse says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So do everything within your own power to run to Christ, but know that it is he who sustains you. Trust that he will guide you. Trust that he loves you. Trust that he will bring you home. Jude 1.24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to him who is able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, meaning Jesus Christ. So if you have counted the cost and abandoned all to follow him, know this. Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I'm not asking. I'm not, I'm not trying to talk anybody out of salvation. Heaven forbid. But if you falsely consider yourself a disciple, I am trying to rip that away. Because what's hanging in the balance for you is eternity. Do you love Jesus Christ? I'm going to keep coming back. More than anyone or anything. Are you willing to lay down your own life for his cause? Are you willing to die for the brother or sister next to you? Because that's part of loving Jesus Christ, to love those whom he loves. If the answer is yes, then praise God. If the answer is I'm not sure, you need to do some soul searching and praying before God today. Verse 31, Jesus goes on to the second parable, the coming of the eternal king. In the parable before, he says, be careful, make sure you count the cost before you pick up the cross if you're not there. And he's talking to this crowd. But in this verse, he says, but remember, you don't have a lot of time. Jesus Christ is coming. Listen to what the Bible says. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. The king in this parable is not in the same position as the builder in our last parable. That man, the builder, was free to act or not act. He was to build or not to build the tower. He needed to count the cost. The warning to him was that he needed to count the cost be before he began to build. He needed to finish what he started. If he was going to start, he needed to finish. There is no room in the kingdom of God for those who start as disciples and yet being pressed by the cost of discipleship do not finish. But in this parable, the king, in this parable, this, this lesser king faces an entirely different scenario. He is being attacked. Someone is coming against him with 20,000 soldiers, but he only has 10,000 soldiers. And he must decide what he's going to do. Will he fight this king or will he surrender? Do you see where the Lord is going with this? Will he fight or will he surrender to the greater force? Beloved, do not miss the point that Jesus is making here. In this parable, Jesus is the king with the greatest fighting force. He is the juggernaut that cannot be stopped. Now, this is a frightening thought for us to consider. Christ is promising that he will come again, and not in the same way that he came in the first advent. His second advent will see Jesus come not as a suffering servant, but praise God, as the conquering king. As the book of Revelation says in verses 19, uh, chapter 19, verses 11, and on, then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in rope dipped in blood, and the, and by, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses from 
from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Praise God for his word. He's coming. And, and, and this is the picture of his coming. He's not coming as a carpenter's son. He's not coming to be crucified. That's been done. He's coming on a horse with a sword that comes out of his mouth and a robe dipped in blood to make war. He's coming. Oh, beloved, Jesus Christ is coming. So to the unsurrendered, the Bible warns in Revelations 19, verse 21, the first part, it says, And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. Jesus Christ is coming, and he's coming to wage war on the unsurrendered. Jesus always wins. No man, no people, no nation can defeat the sovereign God. And that's why the word of God says, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able to withstand him. By this phrase, we understand that we must also calculate the cost of refusing to follow Christ. When we count the cost, whether we're, we, we have enough to finish what we started, we also have to count the cost of what happens if we refuse him. What's the outcome then? Can you defeat Jesus Christ who is sovereign? He is coming on a horse, sword, rope dipped in blood, ready to wage war. Can you defeat him? Do you have the power? Do you see, you see what Jesus is doing? He's letting you know, count the cost, but don't wait too long because I'm coming. And there, if there's a cost to starting, there's also a cost a better, worse cause for rejecting. Can you have the resources, do you have the resources, the ability to defeat King Jesus Christ? Beloved, he is coming in his army and his sword with him. We do not have the resources to fight Jesus. The Bible says that we have 10,000 to meet him who comes against us with 20,000. So notice the state of the laughable affair. Notice the condition of your own power. Whatever you have, Jesus has more. Whatever power you possess, Christ is infinite in power. Your best effort will end in utter humiliating defeat. Philippians 2.9, Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's coming. And everyone will either stand on his right hand or on his left hand. Consider that even the enemy of our souls, Satan, this great deceiver, who has killed millions upon millions upon millions of souls, him whom we cannot fight unless God fights him for us and puts him away from us, even Satan cannot withstand Jesus Christ. Revelation 20.10, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Amen. Consider what he's saying there. Are you more powerful than the enemy of our souls? Because if there's anyone that could possibly try to fight Christ and win, who thinks he might have a chance, it's the enemy of our soul, and he stands no chance. 
Jesus is coming. What should you do? The next verse answers that. Verse 32, if you look with me, you know what you should do? Surrender. Surrender now, today. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Here we encounter an incredible truth. The sinner too must act. Neutrality when it comes to Jesus is impossible. Matthew 12, 30 says the very same thing. Whoever is not with me is against me. There is no neutrality. There is no staying out of the fray. There's no, I'm not going to get involved. There's no country of Switzerland where you can hide. Jesus Christ is coming. Notice that the king in our parable realizes the hopeless condition that he finds himself in. He realizes that he cannot defeat the coming foe. The heavenly king is not a friend of his, but Jesus is an adversary to the sinner. This lesser king needs to change that relationship and do it immediately. He needs to do it now as quickly as possible. So that's why while this king is afar off, a great distance away, he realizes that there's no time to waste. He does not want this coming heavenly king, Jesus, to fall upon him unsuspectingly. So he acts, oh, that this would not escape your attention today. If you do not love Christ like we've talked about, if, if you're not willing to give up your very life for Christ, if your love for Christ does not burn hot, if you have all the knowledge, if you have the five points, amen, but it has not trickled into your heart because it's easy to know and have theology affect the brain but not move the heart. If you do not love Jesus Christ today, surrender before he falls upon you. Oh, that this would not escape your attention. Hebrews 3, 3.15 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Do not be rebellious any longer. Ask God to forgive you for loving other things. Ask God to forgive you for loving self more. Ask God to forgive you for loving this earth more. Devote your life to Jesus Christ. Ask God that to start and finish this work in your heart. That you might see him one day as a friend and not as an adversary. What then should this weaker king do? He should be able to come reconciled with God by surrendering to Jesus Christ. This is the wise, the most sensible, reasonable thing to do. He realized Jesus is coming and he can't stop it. And if Jesus gets there and he's an enemy, Jesus will fight against him. So he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Notice two key points here. He asks to be reconciled. He asks for forgiveness for having started this war in the first place. He is the party at fault. And he must therefore make amends. This is true of every sinner. We are we are and will always be an offense to God while in our natural sinful state. We are the ones through our sins who have started a war with God. His justice, His holiness have been offended. Sin must be destroyed. Do you know that about God, that He is just? We, we love to extol that God is love and praise God for that. We all stand here because of the love of God. But do not forget that the love of God is predicated upon His justice. And that's why the Son dies. His justice and holiness have been offended. Sin must be destroyed. And this man understands that, so he asks for terms of peace. What must I do to get right with you? In other words, 
He completely, 100%, unconditionally surrenders. He doesn't come to the Lord and say, I'll follow you, but that is not a surrender. He comes and says, what must I do to be right with you? And I will do it. You have all the terms. You have all the power. Well, in terms of salvation, what he's asking is, must I confess what I am? I will do it. Must I come as a beggar before God's throne? Here I am. I'm a beggar. Must I admit my inability? I have no power within me to save myself. In terms of discipleship, he's asking, must I love you more than anything else? I will. Must I be willing to die for your cause? Here's my life. If you desire to be saved, you must surrender to Jesus. You must accept his terms. Salvation, after all, belongs to him. Then who can be saved? Asked Peter when Jesus spoke to the rich man. And Jesus says, with man... It is impossible. Have you ever praised God for the comma? Amen. Oh, I thank God for a comma, not a period at that statement. With man, it is what? If he puts a period there, we're all going to hell. But there's a comma, and I thank you, God, for that comma. I was just speaking to our youth group on Friday. I said, I thank God for that comma every time I get to it. Every, every dot, every tittle is the word of God. Amen? And that comma, that, that space, whether in, in the original language there was a comma or not, there was a space. There, there was an extra thought behind it, and I thank God for it. With man, salvation is impossible, but there's no period. There's a comma. But with God, all things are possible. We're standing here because we serve the God of the impossible. If we love him. How can you not love him? How can you not see the worth of him who is so beautiful? We do not want to war with Jesus. The outcome is disastrous for any such individual. Not only will they die on earth, but they will die eternally. Jesus is nearing. And now is the critical hour. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says... For he says, in a favorable time, I've listened to you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today, God has brought a pastor from Victor of all places. Hopefully, hopefully help you see what it really means to be a disciple. To tear away any false notion of discipleship. Why well, go to church? I didn't ask that. As a pastor, many times in speaking to young people, when they're starting a relationship, my first question is, is he a Christian? Well, he goes to church. I didn't ask you that. That always sets my alarm bells just at about a million miles per hour. I didn't ask you if he went to church. Well, he says he is. I didn't ask you if he says he is. I asked you, is he a Christian? Does he love Jesus Christ more than he'll ever love you? I asked you, is he a disciple of Jesus Christ? Is he willing to die for the cross of Christ, the cause of Christ? Is he willing to lay down his life for the brethren? Is he willing to lay down his life at Jesus' beck and call? Does he see himself as nothing, unworthy, saved by grace, willing to do anything for the master's cause? Because if not, he is not for you. Jesus is nearing the critical hour. Today is the day 
of salvation. Right now, you need to get right with God. And I am fully, mindfully aware that most of you came in here saying, I am a Christian. And I pray that that be true. Amen? I pray that that be true. But if God today says, you don't love me like that. If your own heart is condemning you, don't, don't, don't put it aside. Listen to the heart. God is telling you. God is speaking you through the Holy Spirit, letting you know something's wrong. Fix it today. And I can ask you a few questions to help you along this journey. How much do you long for his word in reading it? How much do you delight in it? Do you read the word because it's expected in your home or because you love him? How much do you pray? How much do you seek him? How much you're involved in your father's business? How much time do you spend in entertaining entertainment versus edification and seeking God? Do you long for him? David says, her words to me are better than life. David says, God, I love your words are more to me than gold and than precious silver. David says, I meditate on your word in my bed and my waking up. Deuteronomy says, speak to your children when they wake up, when they walk, when they sit down, when they go to bed. Basically, all the time. Tattoo it between your forehead if you have to. Put it on the doorpost on your heart. Speak the word of God. Love the word of God. Do you love God? Do you love his word? Because if you're not faithful in the little, you will not be faithful in the big. Beloved, do you love Jesus Christ? Because everything else is an invalid confession. That's what we get in verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, including himself, cannot be my disciples. He resummarizes everything he just said in one verse. Almost like he's saying it's important. What do you think? It's important. Wholehearted devotion. All-out loyalty. Complete self-denial. So that no one places himself above Christ. So that no one places himself, his time, his earthly possession, his talents. In any other way apart from Christ. But everything is given to Christ. This is what Jesus requires. If you're going to be a disciple. This crowd was big. Let's not lose sight of the crowd. It was massive. It was following Christ. Wherever he went, they went. They sat down. They, they loved to hear his teachings. They congratulated themselves on how much they had forsaken possibly to follow him. The disciples, I'm sure, were pleased. They were still learning and growing in grace. They were like, look at this huge group. We're making inroads. Everybody was happy with each other except for Jesus Christ, who turned on the very crowd and said, unless you're willing to do this, you're not mine. I wonder how those words struck that crowd. I wonder how many of them were offended. I wonder how many of them said, no, 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 we're good. We're here. He, he, even Jesus doesn't know what it means to be a disciple. You can excuse your heart today rather easily. Your heart is, what does the Bible said, desperately wicked above all things who can understand it. Amen? I hope you know that. This is why David said, Lord, you search my heart, not I will search my heart, because he knew if he searched his own heart, he was going to say, I'm fine. But I pray right now and ask God, God, search my heart. Do I love you? Do I love the Son? When I read about the crucifixion, does it cause me to weep? When I read about the resurrection, does it cause me such an unspeakable joy that I cannot contain myself? Do I love people? So 
I close with this one thought, and I hope that you're listening. What are the fruits then by which we will be known? I think Jesus summarizes this for us. You should love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And you should love your fellow brother as you love yourself. Ask yourself, do I love Jesus that way? And then look around. Do you love each other that way? How prone are you to division? How prone are you to anger? Do you see that person next to you and say, but he's, he's covered in the blood of Jesus just like I am. He's not the most nicest brother. He's a little difficult. We're all on different places in that area. But if he's covered in the blood of Christ, he belongs to whom? Jesus. I must decrease. Christ's cause, including his people, must increase. I will serve. I will love. So, beloved, last question. Are you a disciple? Have you asked God for the forgiveness of your sins through Jesus Christ? Do you realize who you are and what you are? There's nothing good in you. There's nothing good in me in our natural states. We've all sinned against God. We deserve the wrath of God. God is holy. We're not. God cannot allow us into heaven. God cannot bring us into heaven in our natural condition. So God in his great love sends the Son, and injustice punishes the Son as a substitution. The Son keeps the law of God. The Son, in His perfection, goes to the cross as one who is sinless, and He is substituted for the sinner, you and I. And He screams in agony at the cross as the Father pours the full wrath of indignation, His hatred towards sin upon the Son. And the Son pays the debt and dies. And three days later, gloriously, he rises to give us hope that he who finds himself in Jesus Christ can have his sins forgiven and can have the expectation of resurrection day one day. Beloved, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Have you fully trusted in that? Do you love him more than anything else, including your own life?